chapter 6. We are in a series in the book of Acts, and last week we looked at Acts chapter 19 and the fantastic revival that God worked in Ephesus through the preaching of God's Word, through the proclamation of the Gospel and the power of God that accompanied that proclamation that resulted in massive conversions from what we can tell, perhaps tens or even hundreds of thousands of people coming to Christ, uh, demons being driven out, the sick being healed, and even the very economy of Western Asia Minor or the province of Asia in ancient Rome being altered. And we learned that the gospel prevailed mightily there in the face of really great spiritual darkness. It was a very dark place. Ephesus was not a place that would be on the top ten list of the friendliest places to plant a church. It was one of the most challenging places because of the darkness that was there uh, in the form of the occult, demonic activity, uh, idol worship. Um, it, was, it was a dark place, yet the gospel prevailed there. And there are lessons for us from Acts 19. There are lessons for us to learn about dealing with spiritual darkness, for we live in a dark place as well. We live in a spiritual darkness that surrounds us, that comes in all sorts of forms. It comes in things like occult practices, demonic activity, and probably for most people, comes in the form of idolatry, not the worship of a false goddess, Artemis, but the worship of materialism and humanism. We live in this and we're surrounded by it. There's a spiritual battle that we're in. And if we're ignorant of this battle, we're only going to uh, struggle as a result. We need to learn about spiritual warfare. And certainly we can learn much from the Ephesians. We can learn by looking at what happened in Acts, but we can also learn by digging a little deeper into what the Ephesians were learning and practicing as shown to us in, in the letter of the Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote. This letter, this uh, book of Ephesians or letter of Ephesians is a wonderful letter. Paul wrote to the Ephesians later on after Acts 19. And if you read through the book of Ephesians, you'll see that there is the theme of spiritual warfare throughout. There's the theme of the spiritual realm and dealing with spiritual darkness and, and really uh, not so much as emphasizing the darkness, but emphasizing the light of Christ, emphasizing the difference that the gospel makes in terms of spiritual warfare. It's really a manual on spiritual warfare in many ways. So Paul starts off the letter talking about the, what we have in Christ, what Christ has won for us. Uh, Chris opened us in worship, in praying through that prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 about seeing all that we have, all that we have in Christ, all that we have in the spiritual realm. Paul builds them into that, builds in them into the gospel, and then talks about walking the gospel out in their church through their lives and making Christ known through who they are as a people and touching others' lives through that. And then he wraps up at the end in chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, giving very explicit instructions on spiritual warfare. And this section that we're going to look at is not some... Uh, parentheses added on at the end of the book of Ephesians. In many ways, it's a summation of the entire book. 
It's instruction on spiritual warfare. So we're going to look at this today because we need to learn how to do spiritual warfare. We're all in a battle much like the battle that the Ephesians were in. And yet God has preserved for us the instructions that Paul brought to the Ephesians. And really, behind Paul was the Lord caring for his church and caring for us as well, even at this point in time and this church, this local church as well. God has preserved his word so that we might hear from him and learn. So with that in mind, let's pray and ask him to teach us and to speak to us this morning. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us instruction in your word. You have not left us alone. You've given us the Holy Spirit, and you've given us the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, for us to learn from, for for us to hear from you. And so we ask you, God, would you be here with us and speak? Would you help us, Lord? We need your Word. We need your voice. So speak, O Lord, and change our lives and teach us and lead us from this place stronger in you more effective in you, individually and together. We thank you, Lord, for your provision for all these things in Christ through his death and resurrection. Thank you for the blood that covers us and the inheritance we have in Christ. So do all these things. Be magnified, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Paul, in concluding here, says, Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened, around, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Ephesians 6, 10-20, God's word for us. This wonderful section of scripture, this instruction on spiritual warfare, teaches us that we must use the supernatural strength that God has supplied to us. We must use the supernatural strength that God has supplied to us to win the supernatural battle that spiritual darkness brings to us. 
We must use the supernatural strength that God has supplied to win this supernatural battle that we are in with spiritual evil or spiritual darkness. Paul has given us a section full of both promises of God and commands from God. This section of Scripture is full, chock full of God's promises and then chock full of commands to respond to those promises of God, to take up, to stand firm, to take action. God offers us His promises. We are to respond. And so we want to look at that. We want to dig into this section. and We want to do three things. First, we want to talk about the need for the strength of God. We want to talk about the need for the strength. Paul starts out that way, talking about the need, why we need the strength. We want to talk about how it works, the means or the working of that strength. And then we want to talk about the results of that strength. And in this, learn about spiritual warfare. So first, the need of that strength. Paul starts out and says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle is not with flesh and blood merely. Our battle is not with people. Our battle is with spiritual evil, against authorities, against these cosmic powers over this present darkness, against these spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a spiritual reality behind the struggles that we face. There is a spiritual reality behind the battle. The battle isn't just with flesh and blood. It really isn't with flesh and blood. It's with the powers behind that. We must recognize that. We live in a spiritual world, and our battles are spiritual in nature. If we relegate our battle merely to other people, we're going to miss the point that we're in a battle with cosmic powers over this present darkness. Essentially, the evil one in all his minions. Now, Paul's not trying to get into here uh, some delineation of how all those evil powers work. There's not not in this uh, section some special formula to understanding the cosmic powers and and how how to take down cosmic powers. That's not what the point is here. There are some that have advocated uh, strategic level spiritual warfare, it's called, where the focus is on how these cosmic powers work and, and then praying against those particular cosmic powers. I don't deny that that may be how things happen, but that's not the point of Ephesians 6. That's not the point of this section. The point is to make us aware that those powers exist, and that's with whom our battle is, with these cosmic powers, and to not come at it casually. These are cosmic powers. These are rulers and authorities. These are spiritual forces in the heavenly places that outmatch us completely. We in and of ourselves are not up for the battle. These spiritual forces are more powerful, smarter, better organized than we are. And in our own strength, we will do nothing but fall. We don't have a chance. And, and he says that we uh, wrestle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. That, that this battle, that this warfare is a wrestling match. Uh, the word for wrestling means wrestling. It's hand-to-hand combat. This isn't distant combat where the enemy kind of sends an ICBM across the continents and comes and blows up in our midst. It's hand-to-hand. It's close at home. We face... A real, powerful, organized enemy 
who, who comes, who brings the battle close to home. That's important. Because sometimes when we talk about spiritual warfare, people, we can think it's, it's out there. It's, it's praying against those spiritual beings and their, their work. And, and, and certainly prayer is part of that. I don't mean to deny that. But the battle isn't just out there. The battle is close to home. It's hand-to-hand combat. That's why Paul takes all the time he does in the book of Ephesians to talk about how to love one another, to put off the old and put on the new, how to relate as children and parents, how to relate as siblings, how to relate as husband and wife, because that's the battleground, everyday life, everyday occurrences, everyday relationships. That's where the battle is. It's close at hand. And that's where the battle is to be fought and the battle is to be won. Again, remember, this is a summary statement in chapter 6 to the whole book. And so his instruction on, on the power of Christ that we have in the gospel and then walking worthy of the gospel in these practical, real ways is really what this battle is all about. Our spiritual battle with these organized forces is in the context of relationships and things that are close to home. It's in our own heart, even. Now, there's many ways that we experience spiritual warfare. Uh, For me, I've shared this before. Uh, One way that I experience spiritual warfare very regularly, uh, and it's only started since I became a pastor, is when I wake up in the morning. I wake up in the morning. I don't know all the reasons why. I don't know how much of it is just me and the fact that I'm in my 40s and I'm slow in the morning. I don't know what. But I wake up in the morning and I feel like right away there's, there's some spiritual evil there whispering in my ear. My first thoughts in the morning are not, what a beautiful day. It's, it's a beautiful day out. I get to be alive. I'm saved from my sins. Uh, God is sovereign over my life. He's going to use me. He has good works prepared for me today. I'm so eager to get out of bed and get going. That's not what I wake up like. I wake up um, basically, woe is me. And, I, and there's temptation that, that I experience in the, uh, in the morning. It may not be the case for you. Maybe you get up and you do well. But for me, since I started pastoring, my spiritual battles often are in those first few seconds of the day. And they come in the form of, of just being depressed or anxious. My first thoughts of the day are often, oh boy, it's not going to work today. Things are terrible. Or, oh boy, I didn't get that thing done. What's going to happen? And, and I have anxious thoughts or depressive thoughts. That's what I happen, happens to me often in the morning. Not every morning, but many mornings. That's the spiritual battleground for me, right there. It's not that I wake up in the morning and I start tearing down territorial spirits that are over my house and my neighborhood and over the church, and if I tear those spirits down, I'll do all right. No, the, the, the battle is right here. It's in my own heart. It's my doubt. It's my anxiety. It's, it's my depression. And what I've found is the armor of God works. If I get out of bed or if I even just lay there and start putting on the armor one thing at a time, shoo, Anxiety goes away. Now, the temptation may be there, but the voice is no longer influential like it is when I first wake up. So I've had to learn, uh, and I, in the beginning, failed at it. I I learned through failure. So be encouraged, by the way. (laughs) We're going to be failures, but God is for us. He's going to teach us how to wear this armor as we look to him. And so I failed. There were days where I just walked in anxiety, walked in despair. But I learned I need to put the armor on. And when I put it on, it works. Start putting on that gospel armor in the morning, and the battle gets won. I can stand my ground and stand in a such a way that I can, by God's grace, advance the cause of the kingdom. 
That's how it works. I want us to understand that and understand how, how we win this battle. That this battle is close at hand. It's, it's a hand-to-hand combat with the enemy. It's a wrestling match. It's with this enemy that is powerful, with this enemy that is organized, with this enemy that is evil, and yet we have the victory in Christ. Because Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So the need for the battle, the need for the strength of the Lord is because of this enemy that we face so close at hand. The working of the strength is through this armor, this might that God gives us. And I don't want us to look through the armor today and miss the point that this armor is not our armor. It is not our armor. It is not our strength. Whose armor is it in the passage? It is the armor of God. It is God's armor. It is His strength. So Paul says, finally, be strong because you're strong. Be strong because you can do it. Just think positive today. You'll make it. No. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. God has given us this armor. It is His armor. It's God's armor. And He's fashioned it for us to put on. It is the means of God's might and strength for our lives. He wants us to be strong in Him. He wants us to know strength for the battle. He wants us to have victory in the battle. How? By putting on His armor, which is the means of His strength. And the, armor, the whole armor analogy here, the armor metaphor, is not only looking at Roman soldiers in their armor, but Paul actually is looking further back to Isaiah and the Messiah's armor. It is Christ's armor. It's God's armor that we wear. And, and this whole section is tied into Isaiah. I think we have those verses to show. Isaiah 59, speaking of himself, he says, He saw that there was no man and wanted that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Isaiah 11, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. God is the one who wears the armor. Christ himself wears this armor. Christ himself has purchased this armor. It is his armor. It it comes to us through the gospel, through the good news of Christ. And we'll see as we go through that all this armor is based on Christ and the good news of Christ. He gives us this armor. It's his power. It's his strength. So we we read earlier, uh, we heard earlier from Chris as he opened up worship. Paul prays for the Ephesians that they might see, that they might know, that they, they might have power to understand. It's interesting, in Ephesians he does this more than once. He prays that they might have eyes to see what is truth. He prays that they really may see the armor that lays before them that is theirs to wear, wear from Christ himself that they might understand the inheritance that they have, that we might understand. So in chapter 1, he says, We pray that you may know the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his powered power toward us who believe. That we might know this great power according to the working of his great might 
That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. The power that we have, the strength, the might that we have in the armor is the same might that exalted Christ to the right hand of God and the same might through which Christ now reigns and rules over all creation and the same might which will propel him to finish all things and complete all that he has done and rule forever. That's the might you have in the armor. It is yours through Christ. His might, this power is yours. It's at hand for you through the armor. Yet we must put the armor on. And so Paul calls us through this section, to put on these elements, these, these elements that are power for us, for victory. So he, he talks about the elements based on Isaiah, uh, the, this armor, but also using and modifying it with the picture of a Roman soldier, which would have been familiar uh, to his readers, his listeners, uh, and Perhaps for us, I didn't get a picture of a Roman soldier. I hope you have seen one. I'll try to describe as we go along these different elements. Each one of these is the might, the strength, the power of God for us. It is God's armor. So he says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. This might, this power is ours. We are to stand having fastened on the belt of truth. The first part of the armor, the basic part of the armor the soldier would put on was the Roman soldier was a, basically a, an armored kilt that they would wear. Men didn't wear pants back then. They wore skirts uh, or kilts. So this was an armored kilt that you would wear. It was a broad belt. It wasn't like a little thin belt. The belt of truth is not a thin belt. It is really the whole, the whole big belt and holster that holds the sword that is the, the starting place of the armor, the armored kilt, that we are to fasten it. We are to fasten this belt of truth. Now, Truth in the context of Ephesians, when it talks about truth, the truth that is in Christ, speaking the truth in love, it says earlier, the truth here uh, is not just any truth. It is the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel. We talked about that last week. The central truth of Christ crucified and risen. And that if we're to fight a spiritual battle, we have to stand in the power of God, having fastened on this belt of truth, having put it on, and the sense with this uh, in the old translation, is girding the loins, which is, doesn't make sense to us. and uh, It's because of what they used to wear. They'd call it girding the loins. And it had a sense of getting ready to, for action. You don't just put the belt on like, okay, i got to start. It's, it's getting ready. I'm ready. I have this belt of truth. I'm ready for action. It needs to be fastened. It needs to be put on. So what's the picture Paul's getting at? We need the gospel, the truth of Christ to be put on. We must make the gospel, the truth, part of our life. We must start our day with putting on this belt and saying the gospel is true. The the truth of Christ crucified and risen, victorious over sin and death, my forgiveness in Him, all the truth. And and there's a lot of implication with that. I'm going to fasten it on right now. So when I get up in the morning and I'm tempted to despair or anxiety, that's what I need to do. Put on that belt first, the gospel. I need to proclaim the gospel to myself. I need to stand on it. I need to proclaim the gospel even to the darkness that maybe is tempting me. Christ has died for me. He is the king. 
He's paid for my sins. He's risen from the grave. This is truth. I'm going to stand on this. Not a lie, not a feeling, not, a, not just weakness from being in my late 40s or whatever. I'm going to stand on the gospel right now, the gospel of truth. I'm going to start my day by fastening that belt on. That's what Paul's getting at here, this belt of truth. It's where we start. We fasten the gospel. We, we reaffirm the gospel, the truth of Christ. Stand in the power of God, having fastened the belt of truth. Stand, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness, the next major part that would be a breastplate that would cover your torso and protect your torso. It's the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness in Scripture uh, can be understood in two ways that are very much connected, but we need to distinguish them uh, for important reasons. First off, there is the righteousness that is not our own. The righteousness that we could never earn. The righteousness that is the righteousness of Christ himself. No one is righteous before God. No one has loved God faultlessly, loved one another without error. No one has fulfilled the law of God from their hearts. We've all fallen short. Only one has done that. That is Christ. His, his whole life was about pleasing God for, and fulfilling all righteousness. He himself came and lived this perfect life, obeyed in every way to the point of death on the cross. The cross was not only a means to redeem us from our sin, but it was an ultimate expression of the Son's love for the Father, an ultimate expression of His righteousness, that He would lay down everything for the Father's will on the cross. It was ultimate obedience for the love of the Father, for the love of, of His saints as well. It is the, the, the pinnacle of righteousness is His death on the cross. So He is perfectly righteous before the Father. The Father accepted His sacrifice as satisfying to Him, the sacrifice given for our sins. That is the righteousness of Christ. We can never earn that righteousness. Christ earned it alone and then wonder of wonders, as we put our faith in Him, turn from our sin and put our faith in Him, He takes our sin on Himself, pays for it on the cross, and then credits us with that righteousness. So we wear robes of righteousness that are from Christ alone, never to be earned ourselves. We can never earn that righteousness. So when it talks about that breastplate of righteousness, that's what we're doing. We're putting on that breastplate saying, you know what, because of Christ alone, through faith alone, through placing my faith in Him, through this gift, this grace alone that Christ has given me, I am righteous before the Father. And nothing I do, positive or negative, can can compare or match with that righteousness. That's my only hope, is the righteousness of Christ. And so I place my faith in there. I turn from self-effort. I turn from sin. I turn to Christ alone, who is righteous. And in Him, through faith, I'm forgiven and counted righteous because He is righteous. So we put on His righteousness. But Ephesians talks much about the implications of that. Because we are righteous in Christ, because we belong to Him, because His Spirit is in us, now there's this new life. There's this new life where we are to live. We are to put off the old and put on the new. We are to walk in the truth of the Gospel. That is the reality for us already. We are to be righteous ourselves. It's an imperfect righteousness. It will not satisfy God's perfect requirements. But it is real. And God delights in it. And it is a significant part of that breastplate as well. The righteousness of Christ is sometimes called alien righteousness, and, and that doesn't 
mean like alien in terms of movies, aliens and movies. It means alien, it's apart from us, outside of us. It comes from him. The righteousness in our own life in response to Christ is applied righteousness. So that breastplate is both alien and applied together. And so we are to, to put on that breastplate. We are to, to rest in the righteousness we have in Christ, and we are to walk in it. So, so we can't have the breastplate working right if we don't first acknowledge that our righteousness is from Christ alone, and if we don't secondly say, I've got to walk in it. So we deceive ourselves. If we get up in the morning and we're ready to do spiritual warfare and we're not putting our faith in the righteousness of Christ and we're not seeking to walk it out. So if we're deceiving ourselves and walking in sin, conscious High-handed sin, we, we, we know it's sin, and yet we pursue it. Our breastplate isn't on, and you are in danger. Or your breastplate is full of holes, and you are in danger. So if we proclaim Christ, and yet our lives deny Christ, because we're playing with idols, or, and, those, and those can come in different ways, because we're, we're allowing anger and violence to, to, to characterize our lives or, or flirtatiousness and sexual immorality or whatever those sins might be, if we're actively pursuing those sins, we cannot think that we have the breastplate of righteousness on. We have holes in that breastplate and we are vulnerable. You're in danger. You're in a spiritual battle. If you play games with sin, you're going to get shot. You're going to get in trouble. Now, I'm not saying you have to be perfect to avoid, to avoid all harm. You need to put your faith in Christ and turn from sin. And if you're not pursuing open, high-handed sins, um, the Lord's going to be there. He's going to cover you. If you are opening yourself up to sin, though, you are opening holes in your breastplates, and you're going to get in trouble. So I, I want to warn us all to, to not think we can, we can play that game. We need to repent and look to Him, put our faith in Him, and, 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 and have a godly fear of consequences if we play around with those things. So both the... Alien righteousness and applied righteousness is part of our breastplate. And we need to have that breastplate on. And that understanding of that, uh, that it's Christ's righteousness and the applied righteousness, that right understanding keeps us both from what's called legalism, which says it's all about what I do. I've got to earn it. I've got to protect myself. And so we want to protect ourselves from that lie. And also the other side of license, which says, well, I'm righteous in Christ. I can do what I want. I can play games. No, you can't. There are, there are consequences uh, of actively choosing to pursue sin. And we make ourselves vulnerable to the enemy. Um, So there's a spiritual battle. We need to put on this breastplate of righteousness. It is from God. It's His might in our life. It's His power. It's His life. It's it's, uh, not hard. It's not complicated. It, It means simply turning and trusting and receiving that power of God to protect us. So we are to stand with that breastplate on. We are to stand having our shoes Fitted with the gospel of peace, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I've got three translations running through my mind. Sorry if I'm mixing up these verses for you. Uh, In the NIV, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. That as believers, because we have this gospel of peace, we have a readiness in the gospel. Readiness to go. Readiness to go to share the gospel. Readiness to go to proclaim the gospel. And the implication here is, is, is really in every arena. To not divide, improperly or unscripturally divide proclamation of the gospel that, well, that's for unbelievers we, and for believers we don't do that. No, scripture, we proclaim the gospel to everybody. Being a believer means we proclaim the gospel to other believers because they need to hear it and they live by it. 
Being a, a believer means we proclaim the gospel to unbelievers because it is the power of God for their salvation. So when we understand the gospel, there's a readiness, there's a fitting on our feet, a readiness to go and proclaim the gospel, to look for, for chances to share it. When we understand the gospel message, it does, it will motivate us. The power for evangelism is not in the duty that I should do it. The power for evangelism is in the realization that I have something that's amazingly precious and powerful and it has changed my life and will change others' lives. And because I have this thing, I'm ready, I'm eager, I want to go. I want to go and proclaim on the mountains, uh, our God reigns. I want to tell others about it. I want to tell believers about it. So the gospel affects us that way. And Paul's saying, basically, get your gospel shoes on by digging into the gospel and living in it. I think of 1 Peter chapter 3, it says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. How does it start? Setting apart Christ as Lord. I set apart Christ as Lord. He's the King. He rules. He's my everything. And now I'm looking. I'm prepared for any time, any opportunity I have to tell others about Christ. Be they believers or unbelievers. This is my life. This is who I am. So when I relate to others, I tell them. Do it with gentleness and respect, he says. This, these shoes are so important and they motivate us. And I'm, I'm sure you guys have stories of this. Uh, I was just thinking about different opportunities we have. And sometimes I, maybe we forget the opportunities we have to share Christ. I was on a plane recently um, flying back from Baltimore, I think it was. And I sat down next to a guy. And I, I try not to be, uh, I don't want to be a, one of those Christians that kind of, you know, that you don't want to sit next to on the plane ride, um, who sits down and just kind of like, okay, captive audience, I'm just going to blab on about, about the gospel here. I'm going to drop the gospel bomb on them. Um, I don't think that's a good witness. Um, what I look for is just to relate and get to talk with people and hear about their lives. And, um, and so I was on the plane with this, this guy, and we were talking, and he's a Marriott executive, uh, and he flies back and forth. I got to hear his story. We had a wonderful time. I, and, and I have an advantage as a pastor because you always talk about what you do for a living, and so, you know, I mean, I, I can talk about that. But I, but I have done this before I was a pastor as well. And we just talked and ended up, um, had this wonderful conversation about the gospel. Had this wonderful conversation about church. It turns out that this man is, um, I think he's a believer. He's, uh, he, he just shared his whole journey. Uh, he, he grew up in a, a semi, kind of a dead church. And, and God had worked in his life. And he's attending a church up in New Hampshire. And, and I got to talk about Christ and, and share my testimony. We just had a wonderful time. And that, that, all it was was my shoes were on um, that day. Sometimes my shoes aren't on, by the way. I can share those stories too. But my shoes were on. I, I, I was living in the gospel. I had to some degree set apart Christ as Lord. And so in the course of the conversation, I got to share Christ. And I, and I trust it blessed that man. I'm sure you've had those opportunities as well. We are to have our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We're to stand, therefore, in all circumstances, taking up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. These other elements, the shoes and and the belt, um, are important. Paul talks about this shield in all circumstances. This is an important overall weapon in our armory. Now, the Roman soldier would have different types of shield. Typically, it was a, a small shield. The shield he's talking about here is a very large shield that was used, I think, in, in sieges when they would attack a city. 
and it was a large shield, and they would coat it with, uh, I think it had cloth, and they'd soak it with water. And it was an important shield in a siege because the enemy would shoot arrows and would shoot flaming arrows. And this shield extinguished those flaming arrows. It's an important and essential part of the armor of God. It extinguishes the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, Paul doesn't get into what the flaming darts of the evil one are here. He doesn't get into the specifics. I think they can be all sorts of things, but I would say that the enemy... Uh, his favorite weapon is a lie. His favorite weapon is a lie. Uh, and, and the flaming darts often are just spiritually empowered lies. They're lies that come out and they hit you. They hit you in your soft spot if you're not watching. Uh, and they, they're on fire. So if they get in you, they're going to burn. Uh, and, the, and the shield of faith puts them out. Um, the enemy knows your soft spots, by the way. And he'll send lies to, to hit you on your soft spot. That might be an area of temptation or weakness or doubt in your life. He's going he's to get a lie that's going to, uh, if he can hit the mark, going to hit that soft spot for you. I've had that happen in my life before. Um, I've, had, I've had it happen where there was just this, a lie that just hit me in a way was, that I knew it was more than just a, a kind of a concept. There was spiritual power. Have you ever had that happen where there's a lie that hits you home in a way that you're like, whoa, and you come under it and you feel its power, that, that's a flaming dart. And so what is the defense? What is the way to stand and advance with that flaming dart? The shield of faith. The shield of faith that says, this is true. The gospel is true. Christ is true. Not the circumstances, not how I feel, not my misconceptions of things. This is truth. Christ died for sin. Christ rose again. Christ is reigning. Christ is returning. This is truth. All else falls in line with this. This is truth. I stand on this truth above all truths. I put up my shield. This is true. Not that lie. This is true. And it puts out that flaming dart. I debated whether to share this story just because it I think it affects many of us. It affects me. But an amazing experience I had of watching someone put up a shield of faith was being with John Mark when he passed on to be with the Lord. John Mark came with us. Uh, many of you know, most of you knew John. Came with us on the church plant, served us, uh, met his wife, got married here, contracted cancer, and passed on to be with the Lord um, in 2009, June 2009. John was about my age, and he was a dear friend. And I watched this man put up that shield in his last hours. Think about it when you're in your last hours and, and, and you're young. And, and there's so many reasons to think life is a failure. It's wrong. Why did this happen? Why? Uh, what did I do wrong? Um, was there something I did wrong? Is God not in control? There's just all sorts of things. You're in that place on your deathbed. There's all sorts of things that come in as flaming darts and hit you. And John, by God's grace, put up that shield of faith. And he refused to believe those things. He refused to, to, to give in to the doubts. He proclaimed the truth. He stood on Christ. He didn't understand. He didn't want it as far as he 
understood, but he knew that God was sovereign. He knew that Christ had died for him, and he knew that he was reigning now, and that through faith, by grace, he was going to go and be with the Lord. And so he trusted God. He didn't understand. He, he, in those last days, he didn't have an explanation. I didn't have one either. Yet John's last words, repeated over and over again, were, it's better this way. It's better this way. And that wasn't because he had it figured out. It was because he knew God had it figured out. And so he put up that shield of faith. And he went on to be with the Lord with the shield up. He died with his armor on. By God's grace, I want us all to die with our armor on. With that shield of faith and all the other components. Amen. Other components here I'll have to move quickly through. Um, Take up the helmet of salvation. Stand with this helmet of salvation on our heads. A helmet is something that protects a vital part of us. It's also the identity. For a Roman soldier, they would often wear helmets that were decorated, particularly the officers, the centurions and such, that have these large plumes on their heads. So it was a protection and it was a declaration. I am a Roman soldier. This is who I am. I am part of the Roman army. You mess with me, you mess with the Roman army. I'm a Roman soldier. It protects you at the core. The helmet of salvation for us is saying, this is who I am. I am saved in Christ. I belong to Him. I'm safe in Christ. I am saved from my sin. And He reigns. I'm going to be with Him forever. I I put on the helmet of salvation. I find my identity in Christ. That's why Paul spends so much time in the beginning of Ephesians talking about what we have in Christ. The wonderful first chapter just chock full of our inheritance. Chapter 3, saying that they might know the love of God, the infinite dimensions of the love of God that we have in Christ. He wants us to wear this helmet of salvation. He wants us to build our identity on what we have in Christ. You've got to have your helmet on. You've got to put your helmet on. Let me ask you something, a good way to, to gauge whether you have the helmet on. As others talk to you, if, if, you were to, if, if, if I or someone else were to go and interview someone that knew you, and, they would, and I were to say, tell me something about this person, about you, would they say, would one of the first things be that they would say, oh, they're a Christian, they, they're, their life, they're, they talk a lot about Jesus. Would they say that? I think for many, most of you, they would. That's a good indicator if your helmet is on or not because you're seeing yourself, you're relating to others in light of who you are, in light of your Christianity, in light of your salvation. We need to wear that helmet. It's very foolish not to wear that helmet, to go into battle without a helmet. Um, It's very dangerous. So wear that helmet. Put on that helmet that is God's power for us. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit... Uh, is the Word of God, the, God's Word itself, in all of its words, and in particular with the Gospel at the center. This is the sword of the Spirit. We carry the sword of the Spirit. It's Whose sword is it that we carry, by the way? Is it your sword? It's the sword of the Spirit. It's God's sword. God gives you His sword to wield. He gives you His sword to wield, the Word of God. This is His sword. Of all the weaponry that He, that he might de- design, you think, well, God would probably, you know, want to design some huge atomic bomb or something to accomplish his purposes. If he's going to do weaponry, what would God do? No, this is his weaponry right here. This is the sword of the Spirit. This is the chosen weapon of God, the Word of God, the Gospel in particular. And the, and the sword in those days that uh, the Romans used and most armies used was a short sword. 
It was for uh, close combat. It was for poking. And it was both defensive and offensive because the soldiers would stand their ground and poke through their shields and make progress against the enemy that way. That's the gospel in our own lives. We are to stand with the armor on and keep on poking, keep on advancing, keep on thrusting that sword. And where does that sword get thrust? It gets thrust into our own hearts. We apply the gospel to the battlefield, which is right here often. We apply the gospel to other believers because of the battles they will face. We apply the gospel to our communities, our friends, those around us as well. We are to be expert swordsmen and swordswomen, if there is such a word. We are to be experts in using that sword and just simply thrusting it and using it continually. It's not a, it's not a big sword that uh, we think of the long swords that came up in the medieval ages for fighting plate armor. Uh, and sometimes we think of the Word of God like this, oh, I get to be this person who just kind of, you know, really fancy swordsmanship and slash. And That's not it. It's simple thrusts with a short sword. Just simple thrusts. You don't, have to be, uh, you don't have to be a fencing expert. You just need to know the simple gospel and simply proclaim it to yourself regularly. Proclaim it to others regularly. Proclaim it to your friends. And the gospel is very simple. At its core, Christ died for sin. Christ died for sinners. Christ died and rose again. You can add those components, but it's just simple. Christ died for our sins. It's very simple and straightforward. That is the sword, and we're to apply it to our lives. And it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for us as believers, for unbelievers as they would hear and respond to the gospel. It's the power of God. So those simple little, the simple little sword and those simple little thrusts do powerful things. So learn to do that in your life constantly. And I can't overemphasize this. We need to proclaim the gospel to our own souls and our friends and others constantly. We need it to permeate all that we do. A question is, of of, of the things you're listening to and reading, and there's lots of things we can listen to and read about, is the gospel prominent? Is the gospel prominent in the music you listen to? You need the gospel to come and touch your life. You need music to minister to you. Now, I'm not saying don't listen to anything unless it has the gospel in it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the other way around. Is the gospel prominent in the music you listen to? Is it prominent in the entertainment you seek? Is it prominent in the books you read? Is it prominent in the conversations you have with other believers? We need it to be. That's what's meant here. The sword of the Spirit. We're to take it up. We're to use it. And it is to permeate all these things. Yes, there's other things we can talk about. I don't mean to eliminate that. But the gospel must be prominent. So we need to assess our diets. If we're going to survive in this battle, is our diet full of the Word of God, of the Gospel? Is the sword being used frequently? Paul tells us to stand praying at all times in the Spirit as well. And this doesn't have a correspondent uh, part in the Romans armament, uh, but we are to pray. We are to pray at all times. We are to pray... Uh, being alert, we are to persevere in prayer. Prayer is, to, is, is like an, a weapon outside of the regular armor. Uh, I think of maybe an analogy is it's like artillery. If we're going to fight a battle, uh, 
we don't just go in as infantry. We call in the artillery. We call in the, the big cannons, the big guns to, to, to fire and to soften up the territory in, in modern warfare, actually ancient warfare to some degree as well. You don't go into battles without softening up the territory first with, with airstrikes and artillery. That's what prayer is like. And so we not only use the armor in our own lives, but we pray, and that's like calling in airstrikes all the time. Uh, it, it's powerful. Uh, it, it, it's effective. Just think of that. Think, for those of you who play those video games where you, you do things like that, you know you're only allowed like one airstrike, right? In some of those games I've, I've played, you, know, you can have one airstrike, then you have to kind of fight the battle. As a Christian, you have unlimited airstrikes to call in. You can pray about everything. You are to be alert and keep on praying and persevering and asking God to bring in airstrikes. Help this person. Strengthen my brother or sister. Help me. Help my family. Help my children. Touch these neighbors who don't know you. We call in airstrikes from the Lord when we pray. And this is to be an important part of what we do. If the banker come up as we conclude with the last point. The result of walking in these truths. The result of walking in the armor of God. Using this gospel weaponry is that we are able to stand and conquer. We face this enemy. We face a real and powerful and organized enemy, but we've given the very power of God. And when we walk in it, we are able to stand firm. We have, uh, if you look through the passage, I think uh, you, there's a verse to show here. Just over and over again, Paul says to stand. Verse 11, take your stand against the devil's scheme. Verse 13, therefore put on the form of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your grounds. And after you have done everything, to stand. Verse 14, stand firm then. So what's the result when the armor is on, when the power of God is being appropriated to our lives? We stand. We don't fall. We stand. We stand and we conquer. We don't just stand defensively. We stand Certainly do stand defensively, but offensively too. It's the standing here is not like standing, trying to keep from retreating. It's standing firm in the invasion we're a part of. That's what it is. Paul went to Ephesus to invade Ephesus with the gospel. The gospel has come into your life to invade you with the gospel, to conquer every bit of your heart for Christ through the gospel. The gospel has come, Christ has come to invade our lives. The gospel's come for us to invade this area, our families, our friends, our workplaces, our community. And we must stand, as part of this invasion, to stand and conquer. And as we do, as we stand in these things, there will be victory. We will stand after having done everything to stand. We will be able to look at our lives and look back and say, I've been weak, I have struggled, but by God's grace, through the armor of God, I have stood. And now there's an eternal reward that awaits me, that awaits us. The, the lives that have been touched through our standing and walking in these things. The, the reward of obedience and faith that God grants us. We are in a supernatural battle against evil. But we have the supernatural strength of God to win. In his name, for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this wonderful armor. And we ask you, Lord, to help us learn how to wear it and how to be victorious in you. Help us, Lord, to look at the battleground, to not just look outward and think in, in the heavenly places beyond us in some ethereal way there's this battle. No, the battle's close at home. The battle's in our own lives. The battle's going to go on today as we go home. 
And as we relate to one another and as we relate to our neighbors, the battle is in those places, yet you've given us everything we need in Christ. You've given us this armor. Teach us to wear it and use us, Lord, to touch lives, to be changed, to know joy in the victory that you give us in Christ, we pray. Amen.